Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. Welcome to the new year on the Photoactive Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. It's that time of year, that artificial time when we decide to turn over a page of the calendar and move to another year and forget to write the correct year on checks. I haven't written any checks in a long time, to be honest. But the new year always inspires some sort of feeling of change, of of getting back in touch with certain things. People make resolutions. And I don't like that idea of resolution because generally you fail with your resolutions. So it's not very useful as an idea. But we thought we would do a show here about New Year's ideas of how to change your photography. And some of them are very practical ideas and some of them are the kind of idea that might give you a kick in the pants when you're thinking about what to shoot. We've each come up with a few ideas that are, let's say, out of the box. Jeff, you want to start? Um, sure. Well, actually, I'm going to start deep in the box to get all the obvious things out of the way, such as I want to shoot more often. We all want to shoot more often. And you know that can involve making time to do it, carrying your camera more often, all of those things. But we all always have a camera with us. That's true. But how deliberate do you want to be about that? I carry my Fuji X-T1 almost everywhere because I have it in my computer bag. There's a spot for it, you know, et cetera. I find that I'm not shooting as often as I would like with it. When we were thinking about possible topics, we have a, a, a topic coming up uh, that we're thinking about as you know, sh shooting with limitations. I was thinking that that was for this week. And I realized, oh my God, the last week, granted, it's a holiday week, but it, it whizzed on by. I haven't taken any pictures with my with my camera because I've been busy. I've been you know doing family stuff, and I realized that oh, that's totally backward. Those are the things that I need to be capturing, and I forget about it. So you know, being more mindful of of, of just taking photos, and I think on this sort of like grand level, we've said this before. If you want to shoot more. You want to get better pictures, like you have to get out there. You have to go and do something. You have to go take a walk. It sounds so obvious, and yet it's really easy, at least for me, and I'm sure it is for a lot of other people, to not do that, to get caught up in, well, you know, I've got all these emails to go through. I've got book projects. I've got, you know, all the other things, and you just have to carve a little space. Especially this time of year when it's dark out. So for me, spring and summer and fall, after my workday is over, maybe five, six o'clock, I'll go outside, I'll wander around the garden, I'll wander around the village, the farms and all that. But we're recording this as quarter past five, it's pitch dark outside. So it's not that easy for me to get out during the day. I mean, it depends. You know, I'm freelance, I work at home and I do go out shopping or other things during the day. But, but to take a deliberate walk with camera is not something that I can easily do during the day. I think that's the key right there. Deliberate walk with camera. Also, that teaches you to be looking for things, not just, oh, am I going to be inspired by something to take a picture and I'll grab my iPhone? You need to have that level of deliberateness that says, okay, I'm looking for good light. I'm looking for angles and composition. And that puts your brain into that, that, that photographer's mindset. I certainly find there's a difference when I'm out walking with my camera strap over my shoulder. If my iPhone is in my pocket, I really don't think too often of taking it out. But once I've got that camera there, it's 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 a subtle suggestion to me that I am 
even though this is a bit of imposter syndrome, I am a photographer, I have a camera, and I can take pictures with it. With the iPhone, I just don't feel the same, even though I, I think we discussed the new iPhones have really, really good cameras and the software that makes the photos are really good. I got an email this week from someone who is a, a reader or a listener of our work, and uh, he was asking me about the iPhone and whether he should upgrade to the latest iPhone. He's using an iPhone 6S. And what was interesting about his question is that he pretty much never just shoots with the camera app. He uses, uh, I believe it's the Lightroom app, to shoot in RAW. And I thought that that was really interesting because that takes a little bit of extra work, but he likes being able to have the raw file, have the ability to edit. But that means that you aren't just whipping out your phone, swiping to the camera app and taking a picture. He has to be more deliberate because he's, you know, switch over to Lightroom and work on whatever image he has rather than just say, oh, that's a pretty flower, click, and then move on. So that sort of deliberateness, I think, will help everybody. My first idea, and this is something we'll go into a little bit more when we do an episode on constraints, is for a week, a month, two months, shoot with a single lens. One camera, one lens. If you have multiple bodies, just pick one and use one lens. And I've done this at times, like for a week at a time. Over the summer, I used my 18 millimeter Fuji lens, which is what, about 27 millimeters. So this is a wide angle. We'll have a link in the show notes to the episode with Chris Marquardt talking about wide angle lenses. It's something you need to learn to do, and you need to have that on your camera a lot. You can't just do this with a zoom lens and zoom all the way out. It's just not the same. So what I'm doing right now, and I did this a couple of weeks ago when Jeff and I were planning this episode, is I have my 35 millimeter F2 lens on my Fuji X-Pro2. That's a 50 millimeter equivalent. 50 millimeter is the, the first lens I ever had on a camera back in the 70s. It's the basic lens from SLRs back in the day, film cameras. I like that focal length. It's big enough. It's slightly wide. It's not too wide. Things don't get distorted. If I ever can save up the money to buy that Leica M monochrome, I will only be able to afford one lens for it. And what I would get would be a 50 millimeter lens. Hey, the Leica M makes a reappearance in Photoactive. <laughs> Woo, it's been a while since that came up. <laughs> At least a week. That's a fantastic idea. And actually, one of my resolutions is to shoot using filters and simulations more. We've talked about this in the past, setting the camera, in, you know, again, in this case, my Fuji X-T1, to one of the black and white simulations so that I am looking at the scene in a black and white way, not trying to just formulate it in my head. Well, what might this look like in black and white? I still shoot RAW plus JPEG, so I have all the all the advantages of having both versions, the full color RAW and then the filtered one. But again, what we're talking about is what are the things you can do while you're shooting? And so for me, that's going to be one way to you know both envision what I'm shooting and also kind of break my brain out of its habits that that I know are sort of calcifying. I know that when I go out and shoot, I'm going to do it this way. And there are so many other ways I can do it. And I need, just, I need to be more mindful of that. So that's one way of doing it, using simulations more. There's a lot to be said about shooting in black and white mode. So when you look through your viewfinder, you see the image in black and white. Everything changes. That, that flower over there that looked interesting isn't interesting anymore. So you have to find something else. You have to find geometry. You have to find shapes and lines that are different. And that'll train your eye to spot those when you're looking not through a camera viewfinder. What's your next one? So my next idea that's similar is a bit specific to my camera, the Fuji X-Pro2. 
You can also do this on the X100F. There may be some other cameras that have this. This camera has a combination optical viewfinder and electronic viewfinder. What this means is if I'm in electronic viewfinder mode, I see what the picture is going to look like, like what you see in a normal viewfinder on a camera, what you see on an LCD screen. But if I go to optical viewfinder mode, I'm looking through a lens on the camera and I'm seeing the world around me. There are white frame lines in it, which are adjusted according to the focal length of the lens that's connected. And you see a bit outside of it, but you're not seeing the simulation, the colors, the contrast, you're seeing the real world. And I find it really interesting to shoot like that and think absolutely not at all about what the photo is going to look like, but think just what I'm looking at. And then use the kismet of whether it did work out or not when I look at the photos at the end. And I don't chimp when I do that. Chimping, if you don't know, is when you take a picture and you look down at the LCD screen to make sure it's okay. I will look at the histogram, which you can display over the optical viewfinder just to make sure it's not too overexposed or underexposed, but that's it. That right there is is a great suggestion that I hadn't thought of. I think everybody should learn to read your histogram because I've certainly learned this in the past. If you are not paying attention to your histogram, it's very easy to severely underexpose or overexpose, especially if the image looks right to you. So when you're talking about the optical viewfinder, recently I just sold my Nikon D90, which was sort of an odd experience because that's what I shot for years, and it just has an optical viewfinder. Most DSLRs, the mirror inside shows you what the lens is seeing. And so there's quite a bit of, uh, you have to envision what your settings are going to do. You don't have this immediate reflection of what is gonna happen like on uh, mirrorless. So when you're shooting, being able to look at that histogram and see what the sensor is seeing in terms of light levels, that will give you a better result and therefore you won't accidentally over or underexpose something. You know, I totally forgot about that because since I got back into photography, I've only had mirrorless cameras and I forgot that DSLRs don't work like that. Exactly, exactly. So for me, the optical viewfinder is the exception. Right, right. When I was first checking it out, making sure it was clean, getting it ready you know, for, for a friend of mine who bought it, I had that moment of, why isn't it showing me the exposure that I have set here? This is at 1 500th and everything looks really, really bright. And then I realized that, oh, like like all of this, this DSLR shooting knowledge that I had, I don't really need anymore because the mirrorless just gives me a really good impression of what I'm going to get, a really good preview. So maybe that's why people with DSLRs chimp so much, because they're not seeing the photo in the viewfinder or on the LCD screen until after they've shot it. I think that, that is exactly it. Although I don't have that, and yet I still chimp pretty often. So, <clears throat> so <clears throat> maybe I shouldn't admit that out loud. Yes, yes, I chimp, but I try not to. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll give you some more interesting ideas for New Year's photographic resolutions. Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. 
I strongly recommend this course with Joe Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code photoactive. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code photoactive or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. We had some interesting ideas in the first part of the show, and now I'm going to get even a little bit further out of the box. My suggestion is this. Go to places that aren't interesting and take pictures. Don't look for the perfect light. Don't look for the perfect window on the barn or the perfect tree. Find the most boring place you can and walk around until you find interesting pictures. And I know that Jeff's going to have an extension of this idea in a couple of minutes, but go to an empty field and see if you can make a picture that's interesting. Go to the most boring part of a city and see what you can do. We gravitate toward these places that are interesting. In in the town three miles from me is Shakespeare's birthplace. It's a house that was built in the 16th century. I've got a photo of it, but why would I want another photo of it, right? So I, I actually really like walking around the fields here. I'm surrounded by farms and trying to find pictures in the empty fields that are interesting. I don't always succeed, but sometimes I do. Jeff, you have an extension of this? I do, I do, which is a direct result of my own perceived failings of my own work. In this case, I will go and shoot uh, landscapes and such. And so when I do that, my brain is thinking big. I'm thinking wide angle, I'm thinking horizons, I'm thinking colors and skies and clouds and like all of that. And I completely have a blank spot for small details. For example, Last week, we mentioned that I was in Hawaii uh, with my wife, and I did that. I like found you know some, some good sunsets and big areas, and we were going through both of our photos, and hers had a whole bunch of great little details, close-up details, fern fronds and lizards and like, like all the little things that are around us all the time. And it, it just reminds me that, that I need to make sure that when I am shooting somewhere, anywhere, go ahead and, you know, shoot big. There's nothing wrong with that. But also carve some space into my brain to look for small details. Because there have been some times I was at the uh, uh, Portland's Japanese Garden ages ago. And I think one of my favorite shots was one that I took maybe four minutes before we left. And it was just some leaves that had some water on them. And, you know, I, I loved that shot. And I have probably several hundred shots from that area that are completely throwaway. And that one sticks out. So look for details. So one good way to do that, if you're going to use a single camera and a single lens, is to take your telephoto lens with you. But instead of using your telephoto lens to make distant things bigger, use it to look down at the ground, the trees nearby, things like that. If you have a wide-angle lens, it's harder to get those pictures of details because they're too far away in the frame. But if you have a telephoto lens, like an 80 or 90 millimeter equivalent, you can do that. Definitely. So my next resolution sounds simple, and yet it's something that I continually struggle with. I live in Seattle. Seattle is a fantastic place. It's got lots of sky and locations and all that. And Amazon. And, and, oh, yes, that's right. There's a giant river that runs through here. And... <laughs> I realize that that I don't know my city as well photographically as I feel that I should. There are lots of different photo lookouts and sites 
that I've never actually been to. There's a place called Cary Park. It's very famous. It gives you that shot that I'm sure you've seen, which is you see downtown Seattle, you see the Space Needle, you see Mount Rainier in the background on a clear day. Like it's sort of the, the encapsulation of downtown Seattle. I've never been there. I've never shot from there. Part of that is because it's extremely popular. People get that shot just like like you with, with Shakespeare's house. I don't feel that that's a shot that I need in my repertoire, but I also sort of feel like, you know, I should go and do it and explore the surrounding area and make my own shot of that, whether that is the little details around it or finding a different angle or, you know, even just getting up to it. There's another spot, the Jose Rizal Bridge. I think I'm saying that right. And it's a great spot. You look at downtown Seattle and the freeway, you set up a tripod and a long exposure, and you get all those like nice car trails that that make a real dynamic like sunset night night shot. I had never been there because everybody's seen that picture. Well, a friend came to town. We said, okay, let's just go and do that. And I ended up with some really nice pictures that I liked because the light was different, etc. So there are lots of places that you can take advantage of in your own town that you don't know about or that you've just never bothered to do. And so one of my goals is to go find those and also to be able to have something to say when somebody says, oh, where should I go shoot pictures in Seattle? And I'd be like, uh, I don't know, the park, uh, the Space Needle, you know, all those things. I remember seeing trails without even needing a camera back in the day when I was a teenager. Hmm. Was that augmented? Mm. <laughs> that was augmented reality, indeed. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Kirk, what's your next for you? My next idea is that you should be less critical more often. Think about that. Be less critical more often. Now... Let me explain why this idea came up. Before the show, our producer, Doug Adams, said, well, tell people to use oblique strategies. And I did. And the first card I got is be less critical more often. If you don't know it, oblique strategies is a deck of cards with little text on them created by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt. Eno is a musician and producer and Schmidt, a visual artist. And it has things like balance the consistency principle with the inconsistency principle. Mechanicalize something idiosyncratic. Use only one element of each kind. Do we need holes? You can only make one dot at a time. And there's about 120 of these. I'll put a link in the show notes to an iOS app, probably free, that you can do with this. I keep this on my phone at all times. The idea was that these cards would help creative people when they hit a, a block someplace by giving them some sort of out-of-the-box idea. But frankly... Be less critical more often is a hugely important idea in photography. Stop pixel peeping. Stop worrying about exactly the right sharpening and the perfect colors. And yes, there's a little bit of a phone line in the picture, but that's in reality too. Stop it. Don't spend so much time tearing your pictures apart. Learn to take pictures and understand that they are a representation of the world. Now, there are people who are going to Annie Leibovitz does her portraits. They're all staged and set up with complicated lighting. And that's a different kind of thing. But I don't think there are many people among us that are doing this sort of staged photography where you're superimposing images and you're, you're, you're removing what you don't like. Don't stop cloning stuff out with Photoshop. It's just, you know, if you're going to take a picture, take a picture of what's there. So be less critical more often. That is a great idea. And it also points to that idea that I think 
a lot of us forget because we're so focused on the image, especially if you're going to go and do like a landscape shot, you, you get up really early in the morning, you are most likely in a place that is beautiful, that is worth being there, whether you have a camera or not. And so getting caught up in, oh, did I get the right shutter speed? You know, do I have the right composition? All of that also sort of gets you away from the fact that, hey, we're out here doing something that's completely unnecessary unless you are a professional photographer and this is how you make your your living. I think most of us are doing this because we're driven by some need to go make pictures, make art, experience life. And I'm going to sound really carpe diem right now, but honestly, when you go and make pictures, you're activating parts of your brain that you probably don't use every day. And so, you know, remember to enjoy being out there, even if, and again, here I am using myself as the example of the worst, even if you go somewhere and all your shots are terrible, you know, like it happens. Rejoice in your bad photos. Rejoice in your bad photos and realize that, you know, you probably had a good time shooting those photos, or at the very least, you had a good hike to get there, or you're getting some fresh air. There are all good things around this. And so. And you learned something by making bad photos as well. Absolutely. I've learned so much <laughs> as a result <laughs> because of bad photos. We're doing this for all sorts of reasons. And I think pretty low on the list is we need perfect shots in order to sell prints. Yes, a lot of people are doing that. That's fine. But for so many of us, it's because there's some sort of need, there's some sort of desire to get out there and do it. And you just have to acknowledge that. And, you know, also, I think, tying back to myself, don't be so hard on yourself like I am right now. Well, that's exactly what I said. Be less critical more often. Yes. Yes. Okay. Do you have another idea, Jeff, before we close? I have one more thing that is going to seem really foreign to you. I need to read more photo books. I've learned this over the past year of doing this podcast. I have photo books, but uh, boy, I'm nothing compared to the Kirk Photo Library. And so I just need to expose myself to more photos, especially in these dark days of winter when, you know, it, it is a little bit harder. It is a little bit colder and wetter to get out there. And don't use the internet. Use actual books because there's a huge difference in the quality of photos printed in books, the resolution, the type of paper and ink. When you're looking at something on the web, it's just not going to be the same. So my last idea is a quick creative project, and it just came to me this afternoon. I saw an article on the internet about making the home screen on your iPhone more minimalist. Instead of having icons all the way down the home screen, people were showing just like two or three rows of icons and then putting the rest on the second screen. So when you open your phone, you see the apps that you always use and nothing else. And... Part of this is having a different kind of a, a wallpaper, a different photo. I've always, since the very first iPhone I've had, I've always had just a sort of a bluish textured background with a gradient. And I realized, you know, I actually do take pictures and I could put one of my pictures on it. So I tried a bunch of photos and you have to get this right because you've got the dock at the bottom. So you need something at the bottom behind the dock, but you don't want something that gets up behind the icons. Anyway, I'll include the photo that I'm currently using in the show notes. It's a picture of a wheat field, 100 yards from my house. It was getting dark in the summer, pastel colors. The wheat is yellow. The sky is bluish green. There's a few trees, a simple horizon. 
And the way it sits on the screen means that it goes up above the dock and then the blue fades. You know, the way the blue goes from white to darker blue as it goes up into the sky. So find a photo that use this constraint that it's going to fit on your phone or your iPad, crop it to that particular dimension, but find something that's going to work with icons behind it. So it's not just putting a photo for the sake of having a photo, because if the icons are going to get in the way of the, the subject of the photo, that doesn't work. This sounds like a really good idea for our Facebook group. Let's see uh, people's, if you use one of your own photos on your phone or your iPad, uh, show us what it is. I have one that's just almost abstract picture of a glass building uh, from Portland. And even though, yes, my, my home screen is filled with icons, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, it works as a good background because it's, it's not fighting. It's a nice texture, but it's also mine, and so I, I like it for that. So let's see what images you're using on your phones, if they're your images, and uh, we'll just share. Yes, you can either post the images on their own or a screenshot of the home screen with your icons, because that's actually part of the composition, is how you put the icons against the background of the home screen. And that, that I think, is the most important decision. Okay, it's time for our snapshots. What have you got this week, Jeff? This week, I have a book. It was given to us as a gift from my sister-in-law, and uh, it's called The Photo Ark, National Geographic, One Man's Quest to Document the World's Animals. And basically, this guy goes around the world and takes portraits of animals to basically, like, let's get a picture of everything. It's a beautiful piece of work. The photos are pretty much all studio shots, or they look like studio shots. So you have like animals on a black background, a lot of close-ups. It's not like you know you're on safari and you see a lion in the distance. Like he he goes to zoos, he sets up a background. There's an interesting page here where it talks about how he takes this picture of a buffalo, basically setting up a little studio in the buffalo's pen, so that. It would be comfortable because apparently this was, you know, an animal that, that gets spooked easily. And so you see a nice little picture of, you know, like some um, strobe lights that he's hidden up in the rafters. And it's it's just an interesting look at, you know, A, because animals are so varied and can be so colorful and so interesting. Um, but it's also an interesting project in the sense of this was something that really had to be done deliberately and you know with lots of setups and with a with the intent of basically shooting portraits of animals in crazy ways so that's what i like so kirk how about you this week well i'm going to talk about something that i haven't really used very much yet i got a new ipad pro last week and i got apple's pencil this weekend and i mainly wanted the pencil because most of my work is writing, and I'll write an article on my iMac, and I wanted to change my workflow that after I've written the first draft, I take the iPad, go sit in my comfy chair, and edit it using the pencil. And I did that for the first time this morning, and it was quite liberating. Instead of sitting in front of the screen, I'm relaxed and leaning and using, using my hands, not on a keyboard, with the pencil. I want to do the same thing with photo editing tools, and I haven't really decided what yet. So the whole point of this is to say I'm going to try and ed edit photos I, I know I can use Apple's Photos app, but I also have Affinity Photo, and there are other apps that, that I have for the iPad. But I'm going to start doing some photo editing on the iPad with the pencil, because 
this is a different process. It's a more tactile process when you're actually holding a device. Even if you're not touching a real photo, it's different than using a, a, a mouse or a trackpad or something like that. Jeff is nodding his head excitedly because he's done this. Definitely. I know that there are a lot of professional you know, you know, retouchers and photographers who swear by like uh, Wacom tablets. And so being able to do that on the iPad. But that's different because that's still an extension. That's still an abstraction. You're, you're touching the tablet, which is connected to the computer. Here, you're touching the screen. You're touching the photo behind the screen. Exactly. That was the point I was going to make. Perfect. <laughs> okay. I hope you enjoyed all of our New Year's resolution ideas. If you did the wallpaper project, post some photos on our Facebook group. And if you're not a member of our Facebook group, well, why not? You should look us up and join us. And that way you can talk about the episodes and share your photos. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week, thanks again for listening.